0: Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for your word, and as we come and open it now, we ask that you would help us to understand it, uh, to know what it's saying to us, how to apply it to our lives. Well, pray specifically, Lord, for the, the young folks in the room that you'd help them to know what it is that you're saying to them through the Bible this morning. Lord, thank you for the, the gift of the written word so easily accessible to us today. Help us to not take that for granted, but help us to cherish it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to show you guys a picture. This is uh, Alvin and Nellie Anderson. This uh, here, so Alvin is—he uh, served for I think 41 years now as a missionary in Honduras. This picture is a few years old, and uh, I've had the privilege of serving with Alvin three times in Honduras. Honduras is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, even the main city, like where all of the commerce and everything is, it's incredibly poor. But when you get outside of the main city, it is, it's just unbelievably poor in most of Honduras. When we say that we live in a rural area, we don't mean the same thing as rural Honduras. We have basically everything we could need or want, and if we don't have it close to us, we can drive easily to get it. That is not the case in rural Honduras. I want to read to you guys what Alvin said in the uh, monthly newsletter that we got from him this week. He says this, After 41 years of missionary life, I consider myself well-seasoned. However, I continue to be touched and blessed by the hunger and humility of the pastors and leaders from rural areas who wish to be mentored. He doesn't mean physical hunger, although they are physically hungry. He means spiritual hungry. They want to grow in Christ. They want to be led. Our ministry team of six drove forty miles south of the city to minister to forty-eight pastors who attended last month's ministry conference. Some of them came from mountain villages twenty-five miles away, which required a four hour bus ride. What kind of roads mean a twenty-four hour a twenty-five mile trip takes four hours? On a bus can you imagine they received the word like parched ground soaks up a gentle refreshing rain you know last night as the rain just continued to fall gently poured sometimes but mostly just gently and slowly soaking into the ground that's what the the hearts and minds of these desperate pastors was like the the most treasured tool these men have is their bible More than 25% of the pastors in these rural areas cannot read or write. Can you imagine trying to lead a group of people in a religion that's based on the written word when you cannot read it or write it yourself? You've got songs, you've got memory, you've got what other people have said, but you can't read it yourself. However, they have not allowed that to hinder their obedience to the call of God to preach the gospel and to feed the lambs and sheep, meaning the people of God. Ninety percent of them have no formal training, means they've, they've never been trained to be a pastor. Some walk two hours one way to preach or conduct Bible studies and worship services surrounding villages. I share that with you guys this morning to hopefully help you understand what a privilege it is that we could just get in our cars and drive here this morning, but that we have you know, sitting in front of you multiple copies of the word of God per person and except for the youngest in this room all of us can read it all of us can understand it what a privilege it is that we can commune not just with each other but we can commune with the God of the universe this morning through his word the last couple weeks we've been looking at first John chapter 4 the main idea in chapter 4 of 1 John is the idea that God is love. In both verse 7 and verse 16, there's this simple statement that God is love, that His essence is love, that He is the definition of love. If you want to know what love is, you look at God. Specifically, you look at who He is and what He has done and is doing. We said that the, the pinnacle of that, the, the main way that we can know what love is, is that He sent His Son to die for us so that we could be with Him. That's how we define what love is as Christians. 1 John 4, 9-10 through 10 says this, "...in this the love of God was made manifest," meaning is visible to us, "...that God sent His only Son into the world so that He might live through Him." In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we defined that word a couple times. We said the propitiation is the turning away of the wrath, where you have done something that deserves judgment, and yet somebody else does something to turn the wrath of the judge away from you. That is what the love of Jesus is. Now, if you've been... Paying attention as we've gone through 1 John, you've heard this over and over again, right? It's like John keeps coming back to the idea of love, just like he keeps coming back to the idea of abiding or of life, a few other things that are very, just, he keeps circling back to. It's almost like we're climbing a spiral staircase, and every time we come around, we keep seeing those same things over and over again, but we get a little bit different perspective because we're going higher up the spiral staircase. Now, Fancy spiral staircase like this one over in the Vatican is pretty rare. My favorite version of a spiral staircase is this next picture, a fire tower. Anybody love fire towers? No? Okay, one hand. You should all love fire towers. Uh, Some of the people in my family do not love fire towers the same way that I do. When we're driving on vacation, I'm sort of looking at the road but mostly i'm looking at the tree line for interesting things like fire towers when i see one there's much rolling of the eyes in the vehicle and sometimes we stop and go to the fire tower this one is actually down in hocking hills you go to it's just next to ash cave and uh you can't go all the way to the little booth thing at the top but you can go to the layer right below it because the top is locked and uh You can climb all the way up and as you're going up, you keep turning the corner and going higher and turning the corner and going higher and you see the same thing to the north, west, south, and east as you go around. And yet, as you get higher, the perspective changes until you get to the top when you get to see something like this. So, need something to do this fall? Go to Hocking Hills, climb the fire tower near Ash Cave and look around. This is kind of what The Apostle John is doing with us as he talks about love over and over again. We're climbing that tower, we're going up and around, we're seeing the same thing every time we come around, but we see it a little differently. And yeah, it's a lot of work to climb that tower, but love is a lot of work too. We get to the top, we get a different perspective. As we transition into chapter 5 today, John's going to continue building on this. He's going to help us understand more of the love of God. And he's going to focus on a few other things, too. So First John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Next week, we'll do the last part of this chapter, and we'll be done with First John. So this is on page 1023, if you're looking in a pew Bible. First John 5, 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You've heard me say, nobody's born a Christian. You only become a Christian by being born again. So, those are Jesus' words, to be born again. John recorded them for us in the Gospel of John. Now he's building on this in his first letter, First John. And he's saying, look, if you, if you are really a Christian, then you are, you are born again. You're born in God, he says. You're a new creation. And then he says, if you love God, you also love the brothers. So we've seen this over and over in John. It's like we've gone around the staircase one more time. He goes back to that that equality of the love vertically with God and the love horizontally with other Christians. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So again, vertical tied to horizontal, he's saying, actually, he kind of reverses it for us, he says, do you want to know if you're loving each other? Well, the way you know that is if you're keeping the commands of God. Now, the primary two commandments, love God, love others, make sense of that statement for us. If we're loving each other, we are keeping the commandments of God. Notice what he says here. He says, the commands of God are not burdensome. All right? So I'm, I'm going to need a couple volunteers here. So Adam, would you come up here, please? Okay. And uh, could I, Oliver, would you mind coming up too? Be Great. All right. So come on up here, guys. Oliver's looking a little scared. It's okay. So here's what we're going to do. Oliver, come here. Why don't you turn around, face this way. Okay, now Adam, you're going to jump on his back. Oliver, you're going to hold him up, okay? Yeah. All right, good. Well, oh, don't fall off the stage. Let's try it again. Let's get you up there. Okay, tell you what, let's, uh, let's switch roles, okay? Let's switch roles, all right? Ready? Okay, good. You got him? Okay, good. Now, you just stay there for the rest of the sermon, Okay. So you have on your back, Adam, a burden, right? And it's, it's going <laughs> to feel like it's getting heavier the longer you have it, right? Okay, tell you what, let's put, let's put them down, let you guys go back to your seats so we don't break anybody, okay. Thanks, guys, for being good sports, I appreciate it. You guys know what it means to be burdened. You've had heavy burdens on you. Like the, this morning as we were singing and Owen is crying and is inconsolable again. It feels like a burden to me. It's like, man, things were going so well after his pump was installed. We had this great hope. And then the last couple of weeks, it's like it's falling apart again. What is going on? And that feels heavy, like a burden. What John is saying here, though, is that the commands of God are not burdensome to us. Now, that, that might not make sense. You know, so kids in the room, when you think of obeying your parents, much of the time it probably feels like a burden. Like you're not excited to obey your parents, you feel like you have to obey your parents. Funny, funny looks being given to each other right now, That's great. But, but John is saying, look, the commands of God, our obedience to God is not, or maybe we would soften it some, we say should not be burdensome to us. Now how could that be? How could it be that, that God's commandments would not be burdensome? Well, let's flip it around. What would make them burdensome? Well, if we could not obey them, that would be burdensome. We say, wait a minute. I thought the whole reason Jesus came to die is because we couldn't obey God. That is true, right? But once God has saved you, he gives you his Holy Spirit living inside of you. And part of that deal is that he makes it theoretically possible for you to obey the commands of God. You have gone from being a slave to sin to being an overcomer, to use John's word, of sin. So we see this in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So we got the word overcome in there a few times. The Greek word for overcome is Nike. You'll recognize it with a little different pronunciation as Nike means to overcome. Now, I have a challenge for the young ones in the room. Look at what you're wearing. Do you have anything on that has a Nike logo on it? If you do, the first one up here with a Nike logo gets a little baby Ruth. Come on, Oliver, come on, come on. (laughs) All right, congratulations. Two times on stage today. Give Oliver a hand, please. Uh, The Greek word Nike is also the root word for my name. My name means conqueror or overcomer of the people, which I think is pretty cool. But uh, basically, what John is trying to tell us here is That if you are born again, if you are born in God, you are an overcomer. You have overcome the world and the system of the world, the temptations of the world, all of that stuff. And he says, therefore, you can obey the commands of God. What is it that has caused us to be overcomers? Well, according to what he says here at the end of verse 4, it is our faith, so not our works. You didn't. You didn't perform well enough that you became an overcomer. It's not like when you're playing a sport or taking the ACT or something, and the you do better than everybody else and you become an overcomer. That is not the case in the economy of God. Instead, it is faith. It is belief. It is trusting in what Jesus did for you that allows you to now become an overcomer. Well, what's another way that the commands of God could be burdensome. So we looked at if we couldn't obey them, they would be a burden, but we are overcomers and so we can obey them. Well, what if we don't want to obey them? This is where this is where we live, right? We know some of the commands of God and honestly we just don't want to do them. We or we don't even want to know what they are. In the first place, right? Because even though we're, we're born again in Christ, there's this battle that's going on inside of us still. We want what we want, and we want it now. And we don't really want to know what God has to say about it. If we're honest, all of us have that struggle. And it comes out in all kinds of ways. One of the reasons that we're doing the, the finance class is because the stewardship of finances is one of the primary places where that struggle happens. You're like, God, yeah, you can tell me to love my neighbor, I'll read the Bible, I'll pray all this, but you just keep your hands out of my checking account, God, because I want to call the shots there. And yet, Jesus talks more about money than just about anything else. He knows that this is a hard issue for us. and We want you guys to be equipped to be trusting God with that heart issue. Jesus says, where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so, he's like, you know, it's not even so much about your treasure, guys, it's, it's about your heart. And our hearts, many times, tell us that we don't want to obey God. We don't trust Him. We don't trust that His commands are good for us. We don't trust that He has the best in mind for us. We think He might be untrustworthy. If we go on to verse 6, we're going to talk about assurance and confidence, and it's going to be a little confusing as we read these next couple of verses, but we'll make sense of it. Verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Okay, John, what in the world are you talking about right now? What is going on? Well, the water and the blood are referring to two specific events in the life of Jesus, and the Spirit is referring to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through the life of Jesus, through the life of all believers, and continuing on today. If you think about it, where does water show up in the life of Jesus? Most obviously, in his baptism, right? Now there's the water to wine miracle, there's a walking out of water, there's a calling in the storm, all that stuff. But in the baptism of Jesus, water plays a central role. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus is identified by John the Baptist, not the same guy who's right in here, but the cousin of Jesus. He's identified in a very specific way. John one twenty nine says this, Jesus comes to the river where all thousands of people have been coming out to John the Baptist to get baptized. He comes to the river and we see this, the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This labeling of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world happens as Jesus comes to be baptized, and to start his three years of public ministry. John, the writer, wants us to know what John the Baptist said about Jesus so that we have a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. When in First John, the verses that we just read that talk about the water and the blood and the Spirit, and they all testify, the water testifies to who Jesus is because of what John the Baptist said as Jesus came to be dunked under water. Jesus didn't just get dunked under water in order to start his ministry. He came to be announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system of Jesus lambs of are, are, uh, Israel, lambs were offered over and over and over again as a way of propitiating the wrath of God, bringing forgiveness to the people. Jesus as the lamb is that final sacrifice, and John is talking about that here. Well, what about the blood? Where do we see blood in the life of Jesus? Well, most importantly, we see the blood of Jesus poured out in his death poured out on the cross and the ground underneath. Where does the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world actually function as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? On the cross. We see the fulfillment of why Jesus came as he gives up his life on the cross. And so we have the words of John the Baptist at the baptism of Jesus. We have the witness of the blood of poured out for us on the cross, both of these testify, according to 1 John, they testify to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Where do we see those in the lives of Christians today? Well, there's very obvious parallels, right? When we are baptized, when we say, I am trusting in Christ alone, and I'm going to submit to the command of baptism, and I'm going to be immersed under water and pulled out again, symbolically showing the world that I am a new creation, and I want the world to know that Jesus is my Lord. That serves as a testimony, to use John's words. It's a testimony to those who are around us, and it is a testimony to ourselves, and that I belong to Jesus. The water, again, is a testimony. Well, what about the blood? Today we're going to take communion. We will be drinking grape juice instead of the original wine, but it's symbolic of the blood of Jesus. And as we remember, as he told us to, through the act of communion, we remember his death on the cross, and we proclaim it. We testify again to ourselves and to those around us. Well, what about the Spirit? Because John says there's the water and the blood and the Spirit. Where's the Spirit in all this? Well, the Spirit is living in each believer and is testifying internally to us. The Spirit also serves as the inspiration for the Word of God. The only reason we have a Bible is because the Holy Spirit of God inspired the writers of the Bible to write the things that they wrote. And then it was preserved for us, and translated for us, and printed for us, and all those things. But it starts with the inspiration of the Spirit. And so the primary way that we know the testimony of God the Father about who Jesus is and what he came to do is through the inspired word of the Scripture. So yes, the water testifies, the blood testifies, and the Spirit, specifically the Spirit-inspired words testify verse 9 if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he is born concerning his son okay, so what's the testimony that he's talking about here it is whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe god has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that god has born Concerning his son. Let me read that again. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Okay. So it's not simply that some dudes got together over a few thousand years writing a bunch of Bible books and then eventually consolidating them together into what we have as the Bible. What we have is the inspired words of God, including this from 1 John, is the Father using the inspiration of the Spirit to testify about the Son. John says, If you don't believe what the Father has said through the Spirit about the Son, then we need to talk about somebody being a liar. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like it when people lie to me. I don't like it when I'm deceived. I don't like it when I'm promised something and I don't get it. Two days ago, we went to Taco Bell in Sydney, and it was kind of a fiasco in many ways. This is what I ordered. A, what's it called? A uh, Crunch Wrap Supreme. This is what I ordered. This is what I got. I was lied to. I was deceived. It's talk, I should expect that, right? <laughs> yeah. What's what's John saying here about liars though? He says if you don't believe the testimony that the Father has given about the Son, then you make God to be a liar. Now, God doesn't actually become a liar. It's just that you're basically accusing him of lying. That's what he's saying there, right? Those are are big words, right? You're shaking your fist at this guy saying, God, you are a liar. You can't be trusted. What is this testimony that we're given? How do we know that we can trust it? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17, speaking of the written testimony that we have, says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's written in the New Testament, referring back to the Old Testament and the New Testament, which really wasn't the New Testament at the time. is being written, and yet, God is inspiring Paul to write this in such a way that it becomes the authoritative statement for us about what the Word of God is. It is the testimony, God the Father, through the Spirit, about the Son. That's what the written Word is. When we say... I'm not going to trust the Bible. I think it's just a collection of myths or stories or history book or just written by men and it can't be trusted and we've got to take these parts out. Maybe we can leave these parts. When we say that, we are essentially calling God a liar because he has said that his scriptures are inspired. They are God-breathed. Now that, that word there for God-breathed is theonoustos. In the Greek. You can see two root words in there. Theo is in theology, God, right? And neustus, it's a form of pneuma, the idea of air, breath, spirit, pneumatics, right? So what it what this is saying is that the, the scriptures, the words that we're reading this morning, are breathed out, theo theonustus, breathed out by God. And it, that word means both the breathing and it means the spirit. So we see the spirit inspired words of God. And, and if you reject that, you're calling God a liar. Might suggest that that's a pretty rotten way to go through life. You're not going to make it very far. So let's wrap this up. What exactly is the content of? Of the testimony that John is making such a big deal about? You get the water and the blood and the spirit and they all testify. What's the main point? Verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That is the main testimony, not just of John's message here, but of the New Testament, really of the whole Bible. That's it. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's break this down. First part. God gave us eternal life. Now, this is amazing in itself, the idea of eternal life. We talked about last week, a materialist says that matter is all that matters, that there really is no spiritual, that's just what we can see and hold and measure and observe. That's all that there is in this life, and there is no spiritual reality. John says that is baloney. You can have eternal life, that when your body ends, your spirit can live on for eternity in friendship with God. On the flip side of that would be judgment for eternity. He says, but you don't have to have it. You can have eternal life. Where does that life come from? How do we get it? John says, God gives it to us. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. We don't inherit it because we've got the right name in town. We are given it as a gift. Eternal life as a gift. That is the doctrine of grace, the, the teaching that, that we, are re, we, we receive the gift of life from God, not because we deserve it, but because of his great love for us. You're reminded of that most famous of verses, John three sixteen, that God gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish. That doesn't mean won't die on earth. That means eternal death and judgment, but have eternal life. God gave His Son. God gives us eternal life. So back to that verse 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So where, how do we get that life? It's a gift. How does it come to us? It comes to us in the Son. So one of the main words we've seen in 1 John is that idea of propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation, the the turner away of wrath. We saw earlier in 1 John that he is our advocate, that he stands as our lawyer and pleads our case, not as though we are innocent, but that we are guilty, but that he then takes upon himself that guilt and punishment. He is our advocate. John hasn't used the word, but it's the idea of a mediator. Jesus stands between us. We only get life if Jesus is providing that for us. In Acts 4.12, we read this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a very exclusive claim. Our world would say most religions are basically the same. The Bible says that is not true, that there is one name by which you must be saved, it is the name of Jesus. Jesus himself says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is highly offensive to our culture today. It's not politically correct. It's not tolerant to say that Jesus claims to be the only way and that all other ways lead to death. But that is the claim of the scriptures. Do you believe that this morning? You can't get to God through Moses, even though Moses is part of the story of the scriptures, or through Abraham, or through Muhammad or Krishna, or Buddha, or Confucius, or anyone else. There is one name, the name of Jesus, by which we must be saved. There is one truth, one way, and one life, and that is Jesus. Verse 11 again. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Now an equation. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, an exclusive claim. This is John, best buddy of Jesus, saying, if you don't have the Son, if the Son has not saved you, if you are not born again in the Son, then you do not have life. He doesn't say that in a condemning, mean grumpy way, over and over again in the book of John, he has has addressed his readers as beloved. He loves these people. By extension, he loves us. He wants us to understand that these words are true. To have God, you must have the Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have God the Father, you don't have life. This week at uh, Harvard University, here's a picture of Harvard, they, uh, they made a choice, they made an announcement that is uh, at first pretty shocking, but actually fits in with kind of the history of how things are going for a while. Harvard University is probably the most prestigious university in the United States. It's been around for 385 years. So 1636 is when the school was founded, and it was founded as a theological college, a training facility for young men who would become pastors who would then spread the gospel, plant churches, disciple people throughout the rapidly uh, expanding colonies that we would now call the United States of America. Its purpose for its founding was because a bunch of people got together and they said, look, these colonies are exploding. We're going to need churches pastored by good, strong, theologically grounded gospel-loving, gospel-proclaiming men, and we need a place to train them. That's how Harvard got started. Now, Harvard today is, in general, a godless institution. It is churning out graduates that are more prepared to fight against God than to fight on the side of God. The students at Harvard are being trained... In godlessness. Now this week they announced that their their new head chaplain, the one who is going to oversee all the spiritual life on the campus of Harvard, the new head chaplain, is an atheist. You think, How does that make sense? How can he oversee the spiritual life of the school if he's an atheist? Now there's a whole bunch of different chaplains. You got you got different kinds of Christian chaplains, and you got Buddhist and Hindu and. Uh, probably Mormon uh, and uh, Muslim and all kinds of other chaplains on the the campus in order to minister to the different flavors of students. And all of them unanimously said, this guy who's an atheist, he's been the atheist chaplain for a few years, he's going to do a great job leading all of us as we lead off all of our students in spiritual matters. Now, for us, Doug's shaking his head. He's like, what is wrong with these people, right? We look at this and we think, This doesn't make any sense. And yet, all of those highly trained, experienced other chaplains, they all said, this is a great idea. How in the world did Harvard get to that place? This is the the seal of Harvard, this next picture here. Latin word in there, veritas. Anybody know what veritas means? Truth, yes. (laughs) Harvard has walked away from the Truth, Jesus. Psalm 14, first verse says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So, according to the Word of God, the man who is now serving as the chief chaplain of the university founded in order to train men in the Word of God is a fool. about us? Maybe you would openly say, yeah, I don't believe in God. Maybe it's just something that you hide inside of you or the way that you live your life that says, I don't really believe, at least in these areas, I'm going to keep control of this area for my life. Maybe God is there, but he doesn't really have much to do with my life. In that case, we're not really much different than Harvard. Are you committed to what John refers to as the testimony, that Jesus is the way? Are are you committed so that as our world continues to do insane things like what we just learned about at Harvard, are, are you ready to stand on the word of God saying, I believe that this is the testimony of God, and the testimony is that the only way to God is through God the Son, Jesus. Are you ready to be alienated, to be exiled, to be ostracized. I was an interesting book just last night. It was written a few years ago, and some of the things in the book have already come to pass. But the chapter I was reading last night was making this point, saying that there are certain professions that in the next few years it's going to be impossible for a committed biblical Christian to work in those professions. I think about the, the poor guy who keeps getting sued because he won't make cakes to celebrate homosexual unions right and he gets, he wins one battle and then he gets sued again and he wins the battle and he gets sued again, over and over again are we getting to the point where nobody who's going to stand on his christian convictions can be a cake baker what about a lawyer what about a school teacher what about a soldier Are you committed to the testimony of Jesus Christ as the only way to the point where you may even think, Man, I've been working in this direction for 20 years and my career has been going in the right direction and I'm going to have to walk away from it because it's either I go along with what the world is asking me to do or I change my job. It seems to be where we're heading as a country. Are you Ready for that. Will you stand on and with the testimony that John talks about? If you are in Christ, you are an overcomer of the world. Your eternity is set. It is guaranteed. Will you live in light of that as our world gets crazier and crazier? Will you stand strongly on the testimony of the Word of God about the Son of God given to us through the Spirit of God from God the Father? That will set you apart. But It's worth it. Be faithful to your Lord. You'll be a light in darkness. Even when you're called darkness rather than light, you will be a light. In just a few minutes, we're going to partake in communion. I want us to pause and reflect on the things that John has said to us, the challenge that is brought to us as we think about how do we fit into this world. Will we stand on this testimony? The water, the blood, the Spirit all testify to this. Jesus is the way. If you have the Son, you have life. Will you devote your life here to making sure that that is truly proclaimed by you. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that you have given us this gift of this simple little meal where we can remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus, thank you for giving your life so that we could have life. And that if we are in you we have life. Thank you that you not only give that gift to us, no strings attached, no payment that can be made, that you don't simply give us a ticket to heaven, but that you commission us to proclaim the good news of your death until you return. Lord, would you make us more faithful witnesses, more faithful witnesses, testifiers as the water testifies, as the blood testifies, as the spirit testifies may we join with those three and testify strongly and boldly as overcomers who do not need to fear this world, that we are yours we belong to you, we are secure in you we have a testimony to share with the world do that in us Jesus' name. Amen.